All right. Good to see you all tonight. If you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 28. Now, if you weren't here last week, shame on you. No. If you weren't here last week, uh, when we studied chapter 27, we saw how that Isaac thought he was going to die soon. So he wanted to have his favorite son Esau go out and hunt and bring him home some of that game he liked so much to make him some barbecue. And so Esau, so Isaac could bless Esau before he died. Well, Rebecca hears him tell Esau this, and Esau is gone now. So she quickly tells Jacob, uh, here's what your father said. Now we need to act quick. So um, you go ahead and bring me a couple of kids from the goats, a couple of... <laughs> Kids of goats, I want to make that clear, uh, from the, you know, from the, whatever, they were keeping the goats, I'm not sure where. Uh, and so I can fix it the way your dad likes, and you go ahead and put on some of Esau's clothes, and I'll take some of the goat hair and glue it on your hands and arms, and you go in there and pretend you're Esau, because dad, your dad can't see anyways. I mean, he's pretty much blind. So they did this whole ruse, and although Isaac was a little bit, suspicious he bought it and went ahead and blessed uh, Jacob thinking it was Esau and uh, of course after this whole thing happened and Esau came in finally with the the game he had prepared uh, his father told him that whoops uh, I blessed the wrong son who was actually the right son that God said it was going to be the younger who would rule over the older but Isaac decided he was going to do it his way well God says not really uh, you know, so uh, so he winds up telling Esau, look, um, your brother came by deception and stole your birthright, or excuse me, stole your blessing. Uh, the birthright Esau had sold for a bowl of beans, uh, lentil soup. So Esau, to say the least, is very upset. And he, word gets around the family, the servants, that when dad dies, he lives another 43 years, Isaac did, so I don't know what he was thinking, but... You know, but they all thought he was ready to kick the bucket. So Esau said to you know some of the servants, "When Dad dies, I'm going to kill that kid." Okay, kid. He was 77 years old, both of them. So uh, you know, so Rebecca finds out about it and tells um, Jacob that he better get over to her brother Laban's house till things cool down. You know, and so she goes into Isaac and basically. Uh, lies to him again by telling him at the end of verse uh, chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these, who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? I can't handle, you know, Esau's married a couple of Canaanite women, unbelievers, pagans, and uh, I can't deal with it. If Jacob marries a woman from the land here, I'm going to go crazy, all right? So you need to send him away and, and, and have him uh, take a wife from family, you know, in Mesopotamia. That brings us to chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an, be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So here we see Isaac has fully gotten on board now uh, with God's plan for Jacob's life. Um, he now acknowledges that the promise that God gave to his father, Abraham, which then passed to him, to Isaac, instead of to Ishmael, is now going to pass to Jacob and not Esau. As God said to Rebekah when these two guys were still in her womb, you know, there were you know, womb mates fighting it out. And God told her, look, you got two nations in your womb there. Uh, you know, and so, uh, but I'm, God says, but the older shall serve the younger. Well, Esau was born first, uh, then came uh, Jacob holding his heel, and God had told Rebekah that the younger Jacob would rule over his older brother. 
And now as Isaac affirms this, he reaffirms really what God had said, but he's on board now and uh, affirms the blessing uh, of God upon Jacob's life. He says to him a couple of things that are very important. He gives to him or says to him that there are two life-altering decisions a man or a woman can make in life, marriage and worship. To you younger men, I want to say this, choose wisely the woman you marry. Because either she will assist you in your ministry, or she will be your ministry. So take that to heart. And women, same thing. The man that you marry will determine the course of your life and your family. So again, you also must choose wisely. Very important. Now when it comes to worship, well, let me just say this. Nothing will impact your life more than the God you choose to worship and serve. Even as Christians, we understand that we have given our lives to God Almighty, the God of the Bible. But sometimes, if we let ourselves, we can begin to slip into the practice of trying to serve two masters. And Jesus said you can't do that. You'll serve one or the other, but you can't serve both. And that's why Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. The God of the Canaanites, in whose land you dwell, or the God of Lord God Almighty, who brought you into this land, uh, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, Jehovah. So, as Jesus said, you know, you can't serve two masters. I mean, he talked about God and mammon, or money. But there's a lot of other things even Christians try to serve. They try to still serve a career, uh, making that really their God in a lot of ways. Uh, It consumes their life, it takes up all their time. Many have no time left for God or family, and that's a problem. That's when an idol arises in your life. So if you're going to serve the Lord God Almighty, then serve him. Serve him. As David said to Solomon, with a willing heart, a loyal mind, because God will be with you as you serve him and seek him, but if you forsake him, he'll turn his back on you also. You don't want to be in that situation. Now now that Jacob had the covenant blessing upon his life, it was important for him to marry the right woman. Uh, not a pagan from the land of Canaan, obviously. And so verse 5 we read, So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So he goes to Uncle Laban. Now that would be his mom's brother. Padan Aram was in Mesopotamia, as we said last week, about 450 to 500 miles from where Jacob was living. So it's quite a journey. Uh, no doubt took him, uh, you know, at least a month if he really hurried, uh, maybe a month and a half or two months. Uh, but um, that was where Abraham was originally from and where his family still lived. And so uh, Jacob, uh, under his father and mother's direction, wanted to get a wife from family, okay, from uh, the godly line of Seth and later on Shem, okay? That was the messianic line. That was the one Abraham had come from. Anyways, verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him and gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. That's exactly what Esau had done because he was rebellious. He was an unbeliever. He didn't care. You know, a godly woman was the last thing on his list, okay? So uh, the daughters of Canaan, they were kind of wild gals, That appealed to Esau. So he took a couple of wives, drove his mom and dad crazy. And so now he hears how they said to Jacob, look, please don't take a wife from the people of of this area. But go to family in Mesopotamia and choose a wife. Well, when he heard that, when Esau heard that, uh, that that first of all, he was told that by his dad. And then verse 7, that that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalaleth, uh, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So Jacob is a believer. He's not a strong believer. He's a kind of a carnal guy, but he was a believer. All right, And he obeyed his father. His father sent him to marry a woman from the family, okay, from uh, a godly line at least, okay. And um, when Esau heard this, in a vain attempt to kind of 
pleased his father. He decides, well, if dad doesn't want, doesn't like women from Canaan, he wants Jacob to marry, you know, a woman from the family, I'll marry a gal from the family too. Only he chose the wrong side of the family, the daughter of Ishmael, all right? Uh, somebody pointed out in one of the commentaries I was reading today, Ishmael is a classic example of a religious unbeliever in the sense that he was a, among believers in his family. The idea is that when religious unbelievers try to please God, they often have no clue how to do that and wind up you know, doing something or offering God something that really does not please him at all. What God really wanted from Esau was not for him to marry another wife. I mean, that's not really what Isaac or Rebecca wanted. I, I'm sure what they really wanted was Esau to get his life right with God, which I don't know if he ever did. But uh, it does show us one thing. It does show us one thing, and that is the power that a father can have on his son who naturally wants to please him if that father is still in the home, if that father has abandoned his son or his sons or his children, then I know sons will try to find affirmation with another father figure. And if they're in the inner city, oftentimes that is a, an older gangbanger, a leader of a, of a gang. And these young guys who have uh, no fathers that have raised them have gravitated towards the gangs because they have older men that are father figures to them. Bad examples, to be sure. But it just goes to show you that in the absence of a godly father, uh, a son will look for affirmation and input from somewhere else. Not always the best places. Verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. <laughs> Look, for Jacob to fall fast asleep using a rock for a pillow means he must have been pretty exhausted. All right? Must have been pretty exhausted. Uh, he was running from an angry brother who wanted to kill him, which meant he wanted to put as much room between himself and Esau that first day as he could possibly put between them. As we're going to see, the place he winds up, he later names Bethel. Now, we know that Bethel is about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and the place where Jacob lived, where he started out, was about 25 to 30 miles south of Jerusalem. That means that this first day, Jacob traveled at least 40 miles. At least 40 miles. Let me tell you something. For him to cover that much distance in a day meant, listen, he was running. He was running. No doubt looking over his shoulder the whole time, wanting to see if Esau was behind him, chasing him. I mean, this was a rough day for Jacob. Don't forget, he was kind of a mama's boy who liked to kind of hang out at home. Esau was the hunter. He'd get out there. He hunted, you know. Jacob liked to kind of bake with his mom, cook, hang out in the family tent, that kind of thing. Um, this was probably the first time in his life he had ever been away from home. Probably the first time in his life. He's lonely. He's homesick. He's running for his life. He's scared stiff. And he comes to this place exhausted, worn out, and falls fast asleep. And it was in this place of loneliness, fear, and uncertainty that the Lord reveals himself to Jacob. It says, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The Hebrew word for ladder is probably better translated stairway. So this was the original stairway to heaven. But it was a bridge, a bridge that connected heaven with earth. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, because Jesus makes reference of this very incident. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 47. Now Philip runs and gets Nathanael, because Philip's all excited that they have found the Messiah. And he says to him, look, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. And Nathanael says, who? And Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a bad place, like, really a bad place. And Philip doesn't argue, he just says, come and see. Verse 47, so Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. 
and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we assume that wasn't just, you know, a few feet away. This was in a remote place, somewhere where Jesus couldn't see him just from looking. It was something the Holy Spirit had revealed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a word of knowledge, uh, a picture almost that came into his, probably was a picture in his mind. He said, I, I saw you. So it was like a vision in his mind of Nathaniel sitting under this fig tree. Not only did Jesus tell him he was sitting under a fig tree, he tells him what he was doing under that fig tree. You say, what do you mean? Listen, it says, uh, verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Not only does he tell him he's sitting, he was sitting under a fig tree in a place that Jesus couldn't have seen him. He tells him what he was doing under that fig tree. What was he doing? He was reading the scroll of Genesis. He was reading about what was called Jacob's Ladder. How this, Jacob had this famous, well, famous thus, famous dream where he sees this ladder that extends from the earth into heaven. And Jesus is telling us that Jacob's Ladder, as some have called it, was really Jesus the ladder. Okay, it was all about him. He was the ladder of the stairway or really the bridge that connects heaven with earth in the sense of him being the only way we can ascend to heaven. Remember what Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus? A very religious man, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were all about working their way into heaven through their good works, building their own stairway, you might say, one work at a time that they might use to climb up into heaven. And Jesus said in John 3, starting at verse 13, Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven. I wish more people would read that. And he's talking to an ultra-religious Man, he is saying, Nicodemus, even you as a Pharisee, with all the good works you do, even you cannot work your way into heaven. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life when jesus christ was lifted up on that cross to die for our sins that cross became listen the bridge that allows us to ascend to heaven if we believe in jesus christ the scripture calls jesus our great high priest our great high priest in latin the word priest means bridge builder bridge builder jesus built a bridge he was the only one who could because he was god who came down no man could ascend but God could condescend, which he did. He came down, took a body of flesh, became one of us, because sinners couldn't die for sinners. We couldn't die for each other. And God, who is spirit, cannot die. And by the way, it would take a kinsman redeemer to redeem us out of our bondage to sin and death. So Jesus became one of us. He was born of a virgin. He grew up, and eventually he went to the cross to die in our place. And again, guys, that cross became the bridge that bridged heaven and earth. The cross became the way we ascend to heaven. But it's only through Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And we know that very well. Well, back in Genesis 28, verse 13, and he sees this ladder extending from earth to heaven. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, notice, not seeds, plural. This is seed, singular, which means Messiah, okay, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, 
for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac, had no doubt told him, uh, both of them, of how God appeared to each one of them and gave them this spectacular promise. Okay, and you can read about how uh, God first gave it to Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 or 4. But um, Jacob had heard the stories. He had heard the stories of how God appeared to Abraham, gave him this incredible promise that through you, Messiah was going to come. And through Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. A promise he later affirmed to his father Isaac when God finally appeared to Isaac at one point. Now, he has grown up with these stories. He's lived, no doubt, vicariously all his life through his grandfather's experience with God and his father's experience with God, even as we tend to do with some of our heroes in the faith, right? We read about them, we, we read biographies, and we tend to want to live vicariously through their faith, and wow, they were great men and women for God. But now Jacob has his own encounter with God. Where God tells Jacob, this promise would now pass to him, would pass to him. And guys, let me tell you something. This encounter with the Lord radically changed Jacob's life. This was a life-changing experience for Jacob. He didn't realize when he started out running from his brother that God would meet him on the way and give to him such an experience with him that it would change Jacob's whole life from that point on. It proves that, you know what, we really can't live off the faith and experiences that others have had with the Lord. We really need to um, cultivate our own faith and seek to have our own experiences, our own encounters with the Lord. Because only then, guys, will they be powerful and really life-changing. I mean, I have to admit, I love reading biographies of Christians that, you know, especially that lived in the 17th and 18th centuries because, boy, God was really moving. Missions were booming. It was a really a powerful time. You had the Finneys, and you had uh, Moody's, and different Whitfields, and Wesley's, and all. Uh, and just powerful believers for Christ. And I love reading biographies and kind of living vicariously through them. But you know what? As, as wonderful as that is, those really, and they can impact your life, don't get me wrong. But we really need to cultivate our own experiences with God. As somebody has said, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And, and, and our parents can't pass down to us their faith. We have to have our own faith, just like Jacob. Now, he, I'm not saying he wasn't a believer before this. He just didn't really know God in a deep way. We're going to see in a moment that very truth. In fact, let me just say this, okay? Um, God said to Jacob, for I will not leave you. He reaffirms the promise. Now, he gave to Abraham and then Isaac. Now, he passes on to Jacob. He says, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Uh, well, first of all, it sounds like the same promise, basically, that God gave to us. Uh, in Philippians 1, verse 6, where God said to Paul, uh, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, here's the thing. Jesus said that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Why? Well, in part because he's made a promise to us. But he's promised to continue the work. See, when you gave your heart to Christ, a construction project began, spiritually speaking. And whenever you do a construction project, uh, if you are dealing with an existing structure that has to be torn down, that's the first thing that has to happen. You have to tear down the old to build up the new. And that's what the Lord does in our lives. He begins to tear down the old relationships. He begins to tear down the old ways of thinking, the old ways of looking at life. And as we stay in the Word and are fed on the Word of God, we are reprogrammed, you might say. We are, we are, you know, we have the mind of Christ then. And Jesus begins then to construct in us the character of Christ Himself. Uh, he begins to build in us through the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, godly character, etc. All this happens as we are now believers in Christ. So he won't ever leave us until the work is done. And the work is not going to be done, guys, until the rapture. And we are taken to meet him in the air instantly and are made like him. We are glorified. 
At that point, the work of God in our lives will be fully accomplished. Although he'll never leave us, we will be with him forever as his bride in heaven. So it's a wonderful thing to know that God said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not ever, I'm not going to be done with you until I'm done with you. You know, the work I've begun, I'm going to continue your whole life on this earth. And either when you die or when the rapture happens and you're glorified, well, then you'll be made like me, as perfect inwardly uh, and outwardly as you see that I am. But anyways, Genesis 28, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, I like what my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, said with regard to this. Let me read it to you, and I quote, The night before, Jacob had no consciousness of God. His heart was so filled with fear and uncertainty about the future. He was tired and lonely and had no thought of God until after this dream, and he realized that God was in this place. Many times we find ourselves in a place of anxiety, pressure, trouble, and not knowing what the future holds for us. We know what is behind us, but not what is in front of us. We can't go back, but we're afraid to go on. In that place of anxiety and concern, we're not aware of God's presence. We're not aware of the plan of God in our life, or for our life. We can't see His hand on us in these circumstances. It seems that we're desolate, and that God has left us. Not so. Not so. Just as the Lord revealed Himself to Jacob, that He was in that place, surely the Lord is with us. And he has said that he would never leave us nor forsake us, end quote. Now, I want you to understand something. In this place, Jacob just realizes for the first time God is with him. I guess he thought of God in terms of locality, all right? He had left a place where God lived, I guess, and he was on the run. He didn't realize, he, he was not a deeply spiritual man. So he didn't realize that God was with him Wherever he went, he just felt alone and forsaken. And this is when God appears to him and doesn't tell him, I'm joining you for the first time, Jacob, or you've stumbled across the place I happen to hang out. I'm with you always. Even as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, he said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is always with us. Sometimes we don't sense his presence, but that's when you remind yourself of what scripture teaches, not what you're feeling. Sometimes we feel alone, but we are never really alone. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. So verse 18, Then Jacob rose early in the morning, and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. He turned it into a memorial, a memorial to remind him of this experience. And he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Luz means separated. Bethel means house of God. First comes separation, guys before we come to fellowship with him and abiding in his house, in his presence. Separation from what you ask? Well, very simply, separation from the world. Separation from the old life, the old ways of thinking, uh, the old friends. I mean, Christianity is a break from the old to embrace the new. And sometimes the things that we were involved in would now become a hindrance in our fellowship with the Lord, and our abiding in Christ. So first comes Luz, then we experience Bethel. And Jacob, although he was a believer, as I said before, wasn't a very spiritual man. Now later, when God seeks to bring Jacob out of his carnality, back into a deeper place of intimacy and spirituality with him, the Lord referred to himself as the God of Bethel. Here's the thing. This became a pivotal moment in Jacob's life, as I said. 
this is where he really came to know God in a deeper, more intimate way. And every time he strayed, okay, from God, you might say, and got back into carnality, uh, often the Lord would appear to him and say to him, Jacob, it's time to get back to Bethel. I'm the God of Bethel. Remember me? See, we've all had our Bethel experience. Some of us, it was when we got saved and we first committed our life to Christ. That was a very powerful experience where we really felt God's presence. Sometimes it happens farther on down the road where you've been a Christian for a while and all of a sudden, and maybe you're going through a crisis. Maybe you're feeling very lonely and disconnected. And at those times, God appears to us, not literally or physically, but he reveals himself to us in a way that we say, like Jacob, God was in this thing, and I didn't even know it. He said God was in this place, I didn't even realize it. But we're, we go through trials and, and other difficult things, and all of a sudden God appears to us. Sometimes we are prone to say, you know, Lord, I just felt forsaken and alone. I didn't realize, Lord, you were in this thing. You were in this place. We all have had those experiences that we felt really close to God. And there are times when we will stray, drift, and God wants to speak to us and say to us, look, get back to that place where you first really got to know me or that place where we really had that deep intimacy with each other. Jesus said it in the book of Revelation. He said, return to your first love. Same thing, same idea. Return to your first love. Now, unfortunately, Jacob, after having this life-changing experience with God, uh, goes on to make a rather carnal, self-serving vow to him. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I, I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob, in true Jacob fashion, now makes a vow where he's essentially bargaining with the Lord. All right? Now, some have pointed out that uh, Jacob's statement in the Hebrew, where he said, where my translation says, if God will be with me, can also be translated, since God will be with me. And they try to say, well, he wasn't really bargaining with God. He was saying, well, since. Well, you know what? All right, you can interpret it that way if you want. But knowing Jacob, I really think this was a conditional vow that he was making with the Lord. I believe Jacob was saying basically this. Now, Lord, if you're going to be with me, as you promised, okay, you're going to be with me and everywhere I go and give me clothes to wear and food to eat and take good care of me and, and fulfill all your promises that you've given to me to watch over me and so on and so forth, uh, to bless me and so on, then, Lord, you know what? I'm going to bless you by letting you be my God. Such a deal. How can you beat that, Lord? You see, Jacob really wasn't a man of faith who simply took God at his word. No, Jacob had to have visible proof before he would commit his life fully to God. There are a lot of Christians like this. There's a lot of Christians like this. They're like Jacob in this regard. They walk by sight and not by faith. They have his word, but that's not enough. i got to see it. I know what God has promised, but he's got to make it real before I'll really commit fully to him. You know, they want God to unconditionally love them and be faithful to them regardless of how they blow it. But when it comes to how they relate to him, their love for him is very conditional. It's very conditional. It's based on how well he keeps blessing their lives, how well he keeps giving them all the things that they want, and as long as God keeps coming through and blessing them the way they want him to, oh, he's my God, <laughs> you know? If he puts them through a little hard times, if he tries to deepen their faith with some adversity, then I'm out of here kind of a thing. It's very sad to see that, very shallow um, way of relating to God. Well, chapter 29, verse 1, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's 
Well, this rock was probably just, the well was just a hole in the ground. This rock was probably placed over the opening to uh, keep animals from falling in and dying and polluting the, uh, the water. So they had this rock that covered the opening. Verse 4, And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? They said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Now, you know, you get the impression these guys did okay by these wells, all right? They're beating girls all over the place at these wells, all right? It's kind of reminiscent of how Abraham sent his eldest servant, Eliezer, to this same town to get a wife for Isaac. And he makes this 500-mile journey, took him at least a couple months, but he gets to the well not at noon like Jacob did. He gets to the well in the evening time. And just as he sits down to pray, Lord, prosper my journey by sending out a gal who when I ask for a drink of water will say, sure, drink as much as you want. And look, I'll, I'll water your 10 camels for you. All right? No sooner did he say that, then here comes Rebecca. He asks her for a drink. She says, drink as much as you like and I'll go water your 10 camels for you. Wow. Did God prosper his journey. Well, it's the same kind of a story in a sense. And just as Jacob gets to this well now, it was at the very moment that Rachel was arriving with her flock. I mean, God's timing is perfect, isn't it? Verse 7, Then he said, Look, to the shepherds, It is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. Now, from afar, and this is what I kind of, kind of get from the story. From afar, Jacob can see uh, Rachel coming. She's too far to get a good look at her, but he can tell even from a distance, she's a pretty good-looking gal, okay? So he basically tells the other shepherds, uh, guys, uh, there's a lot to do on a farm. What are you just standing around for? Hurry up, water the sheep, and go take care of the cattle. Why do you want them to hurry up and get out of there? Because he wants to have Rachel all to himself. He's thinking, hey, this is how my dad met a wife. This is probably the way God's working in my life. You guys, when you were dating your wife, did she have a little brother who always wanted to kind of hang around you guys? What did you want to do? Here's a buck. Go get some ice cream. You know? Get out of here, kid. You know? You, know, you just wanted to hang out with your girl by yourself. Well, I think in a lot of ways, Jacob just wants these, these guys to get going, right? Verse 8, but they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. These are probably shepherd boys, okay? Because oftentimes the job of keeping sheep uh, was not a very pleasant job. And it often fell to the youngest, okay? Uh, you had to get them broken in sometime. And so, you know, these were probably shepherd boys who had to wait for enough of them to gather by this well for them all to have the strength to move this rock uh, out of the way. Verse 9, now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Over the years, there have been some people that have asked me if I believe in love at first sight. And I say, yes. And I point to Jacob with Rachel. I mean, <laughs> this guy was smitten bad, all right? He was smitten bad. However, I need to balance that by saying this. Even though I believe in love at first sight, often it's nothing more than lust or infatuation. In other words, most of the time it's feelings at first sight. Feelings at first sight. You know, God's, God's word tells us that true love, agape love, is not a feeling, it's a commitment. It's a commitment. Oh, feelings will accompany it. Feelings will follow it. But true love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. Uh, classic verse for this is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he what? Felt for us? He gave. It speaks of commitment. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. That's what love is. Love 
gives. Love commits. Now, Jacob proved his love for Rachel was genuine by the way he committed himself to her by working for her hand in marriage for 14 years. That's commitment. That's commitment. Let me just say this to you guys, young guys and gals. Uh, make sure that what you think is love at first sight really is and not just hormones at first sight. Be careful, all right? Seek God, pray. Make sure that this person really loves you and not themselves. And beware of anybody who says to you, I love you so much, I just can't live without you. Boy, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Wow, they really love me. They can't live without me. No, I think that's a very selfish statement. What they're saying is, you make me feel so good about myself that, you know what, I just can't get along. I can't live without you making me feel good about myself. Often that's a very selfish thing for a person to say. Not always, I'm not saying always, but, you know, beware of that, okay? Um, but I, Jacob loved this woman. He really did. If there was anything, if there is such a thing as love at first sight, it's right here. It's right here. In fact, Jacob's love for Rachel was so real and so powerful that it gave him the strength to move that stone all by himself. Love will do that, okay? Remember Mary Magdalene as she stood outside the empty tomb the morning of Jesus' resurrection? And she's crying because she doesn't know where the body is. And suddenly the Lord appears behind her, and she thought he was the gardener, and said, where have you taken him? Wherever you've taken him, tell me, I will go and bring him back. She was going to go and, and, and take the body herself to bring it back. And I believe she could have because Mary loved Jesus. Love will do that. And so Jacob moves that stone all by himself and waters her flock. And when it says that Jacob then kissed Rachel, <laughs> um, I, I don't really think it means that he walked up to her and planted a big one on her lips, okay? Uh, it probably means he kissed her on the cheek as was common in uh, Middle Eastern custom, you know, when you met somebody, uh, especially family, you'd kiss them on the cheek. And I think that Jacob did this with Rachel, all right? I mean, it would have been improper for him to grab her and, you know, plant a big one on her. You know, I mean, I don't think he did that. I think he just walked up to her, gave her a hug and kissed her on the cheek. I do think, though, the kiss he gave her was a little more tender, lasted maybe a little longer than the normal cultural, hey, how you doing, kind of a hello kiss on the cheek. He was smitten, but not improper. Okay, verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. That would be old Uncle Laban. That's, of course, Jacob's uncle. Um, then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. So he told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. You say, well, Laban's pretty hospitable, right? Well, okay. Uh, you got to know Uncle Laban. He never did anything except he had reasons for it, okay? Sure, Jacob was family, and it was customary to show kindness and hospitality to family. But... This same Laban remembered how that when Abraham sent a servant to get a bride for Isaac, that bride happened to be Laban's sister, Rebekah, that the servant brought all kinds of neat gifts to give to the family, including Laban. And I'm thinking that Laban's probably thinking, you know what, <laughs> maybe this guy's brought some gifts again. So, you know, of course, Jacob had no money. He left pretty quickly. Um, that's why he winds up working for Rachel instead of just purchasing her dowry outright. But anyways, verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So he stayed a month. And no doubt, Jacob was an industrious guy. He wasn't lazy at all. And he was no doubt helping around the farm there and doing all kinds of things. And so Laban said to him, Because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, some of your translations say that Leah's eyes were weak 
Others say they were tender, as in the sense that she couldn't maybe see well, is the idea there. Uh, some commentators say it means that Leah had blue eyes instead of the uh, more acceptable brown eyes of that culture. Others say that her eyes were tender in the sense that she was more refined in her personality than Rachel, more caring in the way she looked at others, more compassionate. We don't know. All we really do know from the text is that Rachel was drop-dead gorgeous, and Leah, although not ugly, was still plain-looking when compared with her beautiful sister. And so she always lived in the shadow. Even though she was the older, she always lived in the shadow of her, of her beautiful younger sister. Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. This is without a doubt one of the most beautiful expressions of love found anywhere in Scripture. I can only think of one that is more powerful. It's the one Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, for his bride. The idea of Jacob serving Laban for seven years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage, as I said, was the dowry he was willing to pay for her. Now, that was excessive. To work seven years, that's a long time. That was an excessive amount to pay for a dowry, or to pay as a dowry. It just shows that Jacob didn't want anyone outbidding him, okay? He came in high because he wanted this gal for a wife, all right? And so he was willing to work and did work for her for seven years. Now, make no mistake about it, guys, this was no easy work. A shepherd lived out in the open field most of the year, in the cold, the wind, the rain, and listen, in constant danger of his life from wild animals that wanted to come and eat the sheep. Such was a shepherd's life, not an easy life. It was 24-7. You didn't have a day off, really, you know. You worked constantly. And to make matters worse, Jacob was about to find out what a master schemer and crook Uncle Laban was a man that would wind up controlling Jacob's life for the next 20 years. 20 years. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in to her, have relations with her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob. And so he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. Now that's got to be one of the great understatements in all the Word of God. You know, they really should have made a movie about this, okay? Can you imagine, all right? People wonder, how did Laban pull this off? Come on. How did he pull this off? Well, I think he probably put a shirt on uh, Leah that smelled like a field and put goat hair on her hands and our, no seriously I think number one Jacob was probably a little tipsy from all the celebrating okay wine was no doubt flowing at this wedding celebration also Leah standing there was wearing a full veil that covered her face completely that's how they did it and by the time the celebrating was over and it was time to take her into the marriage tent uh, it was night it was dark. You couldn't flip on a light, all right? So he couldn't see her face when she took the veil off. I don't think Leah really liked this whole thing. I mean, she may have really been fond of Jacob. Who knows? She may have secretly loved him. But I don't think she wanted to marry him based on deception. I really don't. She was obeying her father who wanted this whole deal. And uh, so she no doubt kept quiet. She didn't say a word so that, you know, Jacob never heard her speak, which would have indicated, wait, that's not Rachel's voice. What's going on here? In verse 25, so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? What's Jacob saying? I can't believe you did this to me. What kind of a person are you? It was dark. You tricked me, okay? I couldn't see what was going on. 
Oh, isn't that the same way that Jacob deceived his father, whose eyes were dark, who was blind and couldn't see? I mean, you know, come on. Jacob had gotten what he deserved. What he deserved. Look, guys, there's, a, there's an immutable law of God known as the law of reciprocity. Biblically stated, you're going to reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. Jacob deceived his father into thinking he was Esau. And now Laban deceives Jacob into thinking Leah was Rachel. And look at the lesson Laban teaches Jacob through it. Verse 26. And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What's Laban saying? You see, Jacob, in our country, we respect the firstborn. Wow. Is Jacob getting back what he sowed? Verse 27, fulfill her week. A week of years is the idea. Fulfill her week, Rachel's week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife, also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. So the way the text seems to read, Jacob gets to marry Rachel right away. So you had two weddings in the space of about a week or so. Leah, of course, the one he didn't want, but Laban pushed on him. And then he said, Laban says, look, I'll give you Rachel. You can marry her right now, but you've got to work for me another seven years, which Jacob winds up doing. Um, you know, guys, Jacob's life would be lived in the school of hard knocks, you might say, for a long time. But it was really his own doing. It was of his own making. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, we read, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. That's when you violate God's uh, laws. And of course, Jacob you know, didn't honor his father. He lied to him. Uh, he used deception and so on. So Jacob broke quite a few commandments. And the writer is saying, look, when we break God's word, God's laws, we will be held accountable. In Job chapter 4, verse 8, we read, Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And that was what Jacob was experiencing. Well, verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Reuben means behold a son. In that culture, to have a son, wow, big deal, big deal. As I told you this before. In that culture, when uh, a woman was pregnant and she went into labor, the whole village, the whole town gathered outside with food and instruments. And if the word came, it's a son, ah, they broke, struck up the band and everyone sang and danced and ate. If the word came, uh, it's a girl, they all packed up and went home. <laughs> Sorry, girls, you know, you've come a long way, all right? And rightfully so, but that's how they looked at boys in that culture, because the boys would carry on the family name, and they would be strong to work around the farm and so on, so they, they liked the guys. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means hearing. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means joined or attached. Uh, you know what? This has got to be one of the saddest stories in the Bible. I can't ever read this without my heart aching for Leah. Honestly, here's a wife who was unloved by her husband, who was trying desperately to win his love and approval by giving him sons. Every time a son was born to her, she thought, now he's going to love me. Now he's going to want to be close to me. Very sad. 
Verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Judah means praise. It seems like something has happened in Leah's heart at this point. Her focus changes from Jacob to God. From trying to win her husband's love and approval to thanking and praising God for his love and approval. I mean, look at what God did for her. He winds up giving her six sons. Six sons. One of them was Levi, through whom the Levites would descend, the priestly tribe. And the other was Judah, through whom the Messiah would be born. All in the midst of this painful, heartbreaking circumstance where she felt forsaken, unloved, yet God was with her. Let me just close with this. Even in our toughest circumstances, we must get our eyes off of people. We must not try to draw our approval or affirmation from people. I mean, it's nice when people encourage us. It's nice when they say thank you for a job well done or you've been a great dad or a great mom or a great husband or wife. That's wonderful. But you know what? People will let us down. And sometimes the people we pour the most into, some reason, love us the least. I don't know what to say about that. It just happens. It's at those times we must get our eyes off of people and get our eyes on God and realize that he has always been with us, even in this difficult circumstance. Get our eyes off the circumstance, get our eyes off of people and begin to focus on God and let it give birth, listen, to praise, to praise. Because if you keep your eyes on God, I've learned this, I learned this a long time ago in my ministry. Look, you guys are some of the most encouraging, loving people any pastor could ever have. I mean, I've read stories, again, these biographies I like to, to reference. I've read stories about churches who treated their pastors like garbage. I mean, I, th I think of Jonathan Edwards. Here's a guy that was, a, he was one of two of the most brilliant men that this country has ever produced, the other being Ben Franklin. Those two are considered the greatest mind. He was a theologian of theologians. Yet his church didn't really like him. I don't know why. They didn't appreciate him. I'm very appreciated, and I thank God for you guys. But I learned a long time ago that you pour yourself into people, and sometimes people, they turn against you, they forsake you, uh, they go out and say all kinds of untrue things about you. And I remember going through a time uh, like this years and years ago. I, I was not in ministry that long, maybe about four years. I was going through a real rough time. I forgot what it was, but it's just a real rough time with some of the people in the church. And I remember I was uh, visiting my uh, parents in California. Uh, I was actually out there for a pastor's conference, but I go out early to spend time with them. And I remember, you know, uh, I was... Uh, sleeping on the floor in the front room because the house was packed. And uh, I was really in a bad place, really just feeling sorry for myself and just you know, looking at these folks and wondering, well, why are they treating me like this? I've tried to do right by them and treat them rightly and so on. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. You know, you ever had one of those times where it's real clear, not audible, but real clear? And the Lord spoke to me and said, you're like Peter on the Sea of Galilee. When he kept his eyes on me, he was able to do the impossible. Ministry is really a supernatural thing. You have to draw God's grace and strength every day to do it. All right? But the Lord said, when Peter kept his eyes on me, he was able to do the impossible. He walked on water. As soon as he got his eyes off of me and began to look at his circumstances, he began to sink. Get your eyes off the people. Love the people. Serve the people. But keep your eyes on me. Always do it for me. You know what, guys? That set me free. That, that was one of those pivotal moments in my life where God spoke to me, and he really caused me to understand that, look, this is the nature of ministry. People are going to turn. If they turned against Jesus, who am I to think they're not going to turn against me? But you know what? Jesus did it for his father, and he did it out of love for people who many of them rejected him and wound up crucifying him. He still loved them. And you know what? It's just taught me that I need to keep my eyes on the Lord, no matter what I'm going through. And as I do, it will give birth to praise. And you know what? Praise is a manifestation of faith. 
And when you wind up praising God in your circumstances, it will lift you up and will give you victory. So may God help us to learn, I think, what Leah finally learned, you know, uh, to just get our eyes on God and just let it give birth to praise. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight. And uh, Father, we pray that the lessons that we have learned here, that your spirit has taught us, that you'll give us grace to understand and apply into our lives. And we just praise you, Lord, for all your goodness, greatness, kindness, and love. And uh, give us grace to keep our eyes on you, Lord, and to do all that we do for others, to do it really for you. Because you'll never, you'll never turn against us. And uh, Lord, you'll always appreciate what we do for others in your name. We thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.